Torah Resource presents the Rob and Caleb Show. All aboard! And now, from two sides of the same state, here they are, Rob and Caleb. What up and shalom. Welcome to the Rob and Caleb Show. My name is Caleb Hegg. With me as always... Rob Van Hoff. What up, Rob? How's it going, brother? Chag Sameach. Chag Sameach to you. Yes, a happy Passover to everyone. What up and shalom to everyone in the chat room, everyone listening out there. Uh, We are having technical difficulties, unfortunately. That's why we got started so late. For some reason, we're not getting any video this week. So I'm not sure what uh, the people who normally watch on YouTube are (laughs) going to end up doing, Uh, but... Yeah, I guess. You know, that. I'm looking. You know, what I'm chalking it up to Caleb. What's that? The video's at eleven. So this week we're just having unleavened. Yes, Robin Caleb show. That's right, unleavened Robin Caleb. Back show. to the back to the back to the core. <laughs> Video was added later. Remember? Yes, that's so right. This is old school, unleavened Robin Caleb show coming at you. That's the way to do it, huh? <laughs> we're just when we put it on YouTube, you should just have a piece of matzah like. <laughs> in the video the whole time. Uh, fair <laughs> enough, fair enough. All right, well, hey, uh, welcome everyone. Uh, happy everyone's with us in the chat room. It looks like we got some new faces in there. If you'd like to join us, actually, you know, if you want to uh, figure out anything about the Robin Caleb show, I figured out what to do. Uh, go to Google and type in the Robin Caleb show and press enter. Like the first full page is all us, and you can find like our iTunes feed there. You can find our chat room there. You can find uh, all sorts of our, our Facebook page, everything. So that way we don't have to keep telling people to do a bunch of stuff. Like go to this page, go to that page. No, just go type in the Robin Caleb show to Google. You can, oh wait, hang on. Let's, I have a, I have a sound clip for that. Yeah. Caleb created a new song here. Uh, no, but uh, I'm not going to use the song. My computer is running so slow today. You can Google it. Okay. Um <laughs> Okay, so we have a lot to talk about today. I know that Rob at some point wanted to talk about the uh, the counting of the Omer. And we're going to talk about the Exodus today. You can find our show notes on our page, the Rob and Caleb Show page. Um, and so, but first I wanted to talk about this. In the chat room before we got started, Lois brought up uh, something that I wanted to touch on for just a second. Now, Rob hasn't heard this, seen this, or anything like that. I just printed this off. This is from the Messiah Journal, which is put out by FFOZ, uh, First Fruits of Zion. And this is uh, journal number 119. This is on page 9. And I just want to get uh, Rob's reaction to what's said here. So this is written by Boaz Michael. I've met Boaz many, many a time. And uh, so FFOZ is not what is known as one Torah or one law. They, uh, they used to be there, not anymore. So one Torah means Rob and I are one Torah. And uh, we, that means that we believe that the Torah is applicable today for Jew and Gentile alike. Okay, so listen to what Boaz has to say here. This is the Messiah Journal, page 9, number 119. On the surface, it appears that the difference between one law, theology, and Messianic Judaism is simply a question about how much Torah Gentiles should keep. Do Gentiles in Messiah sin by not keeping the Sabbath? Are they required to wear tzitzit? Are they sinning by eating unclean things? That's how most people state the issue. But those questions are just an outworking of a deeper worldview. 
In reality, the difference between uh, Messianic Judaism, as I define it, and one law theology is a difference of hashkava. The hashkava behind one law theology assumes that Judaism is an, an illegitimate religion based primarily on the d- traditions of men, and that the general Jewish rejection of Yeshua and Messiah invalidates Jewish religious and legal authority. So uh, I want to stop right there for just a second. It sounds to me like he's saying that since we don't, since we believe in sola scriptura, that's the rub. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's how I take that. That our worldview is sola scriptura, and his worldview is not sola scriptura. Caleb, it's not worldview; it's hashkafa. A uh, hashkafa. Okay, I'm sorry. Hashkafa. Yes, but how uh, does he spell that? H a s h k a f a h. Hashkafa. Um, but yeah, I, uh, he's taking that's that. A mod- that's, the, that's the modern Hebrew word for worldview. Yes. And you're not going to find this, uh, by the way, I see people saying something about uh, show notes. You're not going to find this in the show notes because I just got this off the printer. Okay. Uh, let me keep going. It assumes that there is no religious authority outside of an individual's reading and interpretation of the Bible. I don't believe that that's what one Torah theology has ever said. And since many teachers of one law theology hold a hashkafa derived from Calvinism and reform theology, their theological paradigm eliminates the biblical distinction between Jewish people and Gentiles. I think that uh, the Arminian uh, slash Wesleyan uh, people that hold to that, you know, a Wesleyan view that are in our uh, chat room right now might have something to say about that. To them, any practical differentiation between Jewish and Gentile believers is an artificial distinction created by the illegitimate religious system of Judaism. The Gentile identity have been erased. Therefore, Scripture applies to everyone universally. Brothers and sisters in the Messiah operating under this paradigm of thought will find the teachings of First Fruits of Zion incompatible with their worldview. And then at the bottom of this little section, he puts like a... uh, It's almost like he's created his own dictionary entry. I'm not exactly sure what this is. I think he wrote this, but I could be wrong. It says, one law, the belief that New Testament erases distinction between Jewish and Gentile believers, therefore obligating both groups to to identical standards. Uh, To me, that says that he hasn't read or listened to anything that the people who, well, maybe, maybe I shouldn't say that. It says that he hasn't read what we've put out in terms of one Torah. Um, What do you think about that, Rob? Yeah, I I just think that he's... Um, you know, I, I, I've met Boaz before we've had coffee and chatted and, um, you know, I, I, I don't doubt that he loves the Lord. Uh, my concern is that he, he doesn't seem to be, I, I don't know where he learns what he learns. That's, that's one of the trouble things, but he's just, he's basically saying that the Babylonian Talmud is authoritative, that, that the tradition preserved in the Babylonian Talmud concerning the distinction of uh, covenant obligations and things like that, you know, uh, are hold true. And so he wants, you know, what he calls Messianic Judaism to exist. That's the term, this idea of Messianic Judaism, because on the other side, you're going to have Orthodox Jews in Israel that are going to say, you know, that are, if they are coming from that Babylonian Talmudic orientation that that is a, that that's holy word of god mm-hmm. then 
they're going to, as long as it doesn't matter if you believe in Yeshua or not, if you agree with that, then, then they'll probably tolerate you, you know, but if you, so in other words, what, what I see this, this use, particularly the use of the word hashkafa, I don't think, I don't think, uh, Boaz Michael knows Hebrew. I don't think he can speak Hebrew. I, I mean, in my experience, he didn't really have a, a grasp on Hebrew. So him throwing this word hashkafa is well, kind but, of strange. But now he's, he's living in Israel now. So, you know, let's, oh, give, yeah. him, let's I, give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he's, uh, maybe he's, maybe, learning, Hebrew. Maybe he's learning Hebrew. So Yeah, and, and I think that <coughs> these definitions permit him to, to go in circles that he wouldn't be otherwise. But, you know, here's the thing. I've been looking at all these Christian publishers in Israel, Israeli you know, Jewish believers in Yeshua who call themselves Mashiachim, Right, but they're just Christian. I mean, they're they're not. They don't use the term Mashiachim to differentiate themselves from Christians. They just use it because that's just the Hebrew word for Christian. And they are, you know, where where is Boaz putting them? You know, when it's I don't know. There's so much to to talk about here. Uh, he's he's making a dis- distinction. He wants people to understand first fruits of Zion's position, and that's great. He can do it. I think his definition of of uh, terms is very problematic. I wrote a, a review of his book, uh, Tent of David. Anybody can go and read that on the online. Um, I don't. Yeah, I just i i don't I don't want to say anything else. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Um, let's move on then. <clears throat> Pardon me. Let me get to my show notes. Sorry. Uh, with all of the confusion of not being able to re- videotape our show today, which I'm still baffled about, um, then I have not really fully prepared here. Um, actually today we're going to have, we're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to have a whole lot of fun today because, uh, we're talking about something that, I actually am excited about, but let's start at the very beginning. First of all, I want to say that Easter was this past Sunday, and uh, during the celebration of Passover and then Easter is usually right around the the celebration of Passover or during the celebration of Passover. Uh, my Facebook newsfeed gets gets filled with uh, our my Messianic friends telling their Christian friends all about Easter and how pagan it is. I would like to just say this one. This has kind of become one of my pet peeves. Uh, all I've had so many people say that Easter is the name Ishtar from the goddess Ishtar. And uh, they just say that without bringing any, uh, any sources into it. I have not been able to find this anywhere. I don't think that Easter is re- related to the name Ishtar. In fact, I think that would be like... I mean, just because it, uh, one word sounds like another word doesn't mean it's the same word. From everything that I can find, from everything I can find, Easter is a German word, and that was the name of the month. It would be like us saying April. Right. Or it would be like saying the book of Esther sounds like Easter. Yeah, and so it must be from a so pagan therefore, God. it should be kicked out of the Bible. Yeah. Um, you know, here... Uh, are you done? I have a, Go for I have one it. I got to jump into. Okay, someone told me about Caleb. Maybe it was you. Apparently, there's a like a quote Messianic Orthodox rabbi out there that has taught that. Oh wait, hang on, Kevin. Kevin says not true about the Ishtar thing. Kevin, go ahead and cite your source for me in in the chat log. Keep going, Rob. 
Okay. Um, the uh, yeah, we can talk. We can get back to that. Thanks for posting. I, I appreciate the back and forth with the message board, so we can kind of follow. Um, um, but yeah, apparently there's an Orthodox Messianic rabbi saying that you can't. Use, we don't use the word hermeneutics because <laughs> it comes from the god Hermes, and instead we use pardes, uh, Peshat, remez, you know, Darash, Sod. And so I just wanted to pause on that. Like, I don't know if anybody's ever heard that before. But her, so the word hermeneutics is a, comes from the Greek word to, and her, uh, herme is part of it, which means messenger. He was like this. Yes, there was a god named Hermes. Like I think he's Mercury in Latin sources. I think he's the guy that has wings on his ankles or wings on his helmet or something. Um, any case, the. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm looking at the message. I know. I got to get my thought process here. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so Hermes has nothing to do with why we use the word hermeneutics. But this apparently there's a Messianic Orthodox rabbi, so named teacher, teaching this. And that's why we can't use the word hermeneutics. Well, <laughs> then he can't use the Greek apostolic writings at yeah, all. Yeah, exactly. Because this word, it, to, the verb to interpret, hermeneo, is in there all over the place. Not only that, pardes, the word for uh, the word for paradise or orchard, that's a Persian word. Pardes is is not a, a Hebrew term. It comes into Hebrew. It's in the Song of Solomon, and it's it's Yeshua says, "You will be with me in paradise." Paradise. That's where we get the word paradise. But that's not a, a term from the Torah either. That's a Persian loan word. Oh, so what does that I, mean? <laughs> I don't know. I'm like, are we Zoroastrians now? So the point is, it's like people make, we got to be careful when we do this. We got to be careful when you just, two words sound alike. And so now we've got a parallelomania, everything. Well, I feel like, I, I okay, I'm sorry to jump in here. First of all, I want to say I'm sorry to Kevin. Apparently he was agreeing with us, not disagreeing with us. So my apologies to Kevin in the chat room. Um, but the, I feel like messi- one of the things that Messianic Ju- Judaism, that's a bad word. I want to get away from that. Uh, the, the one thing that Messianic faith, people in the Messianic faith have, have done is they're pushing so hard against anything pagan that it, it's like they go to the extreme. Now, everything's pagan. It doesn't matter what it is. Everything's pagan. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. uh, oh, this word, sa- you know, we can't use the word Lord the English word Lord, because that's actually related to a pagan word. Come on, nonsense. We can't use the word God because that's actually related to a pagan. Come on, are you serious? No, you can't go overboard on these things. And while I agree, look, the idea of putting a bunny and eggs into uh, the celebration of Christ's resurrection and eating a Easter ham, which, I mean, come on, a Jewish guy dies and is resurrected, and a, an observant Jewish guy is resurrected, and you want to celebrate that by eating ham? Uh, come on, obviously I'm not for all of the traditions that we have at Easter, but you can't just throw everything out and say, oh, it's pagan. To me, that that's nonsense. Okay, um, let's keep going. Here, here, Here's another deal. Okay, go for it. Back to the, the FFOZ publication. He wants to use Judaism religion, Judaism religion. That's what we got to be careful of. In, in Yeshua's day, there was no, they didn't have a word religion. Yeshua did not come to start a religion. The rabbis did not try to create a religion. The rabbis do not have a religion called Judaism. 
if you listen to my interview with Daniel Boyarin, who's a professor of Talmud, he makes the same point. Shia Cohen, who wrote from the Maccabees to the Mishnah, makes, makes the same point. There's, there is no word religion back then. The rabbis call their, what they call, what they do, halakha. That's what, that's what it is. There's no word religion. Today, and this is what I think FFOZ is stuck in, they're stuck in the, real, the wheel, route, the wheel uh, ruts that are ingrained in the highway, and they can't steer out of them. They keep, their, their wheels keep getting trapped in, the, in those ruts. And the red is thinking, trying to define everything in terms of a religion called Christianity and a religion called, capital J, Judaism. And that's, that's not what we are. That does not help us. That those, those are, thinking in those categories is a hindrance to our understanding of our, who we are in Messiah Yeshua, as his Talmudim, as, his, as brothers and sisters, with him as our rabbi, him as our master, him as our savior. Every all these uh, these other maps that people try to enforce and then try to tell oh no you don't belong in this line you need to go to that line is it has nothing to do with the faith of Yeshua and we need to we need to remember that you know in in essence my suspicion is that FFOZ is afraid they're afraid of uh, powers that be. And they do not want to be categorized by the powers that be as being anti-Jewish. They're afraid of anti-Jewish. And so what are they going to do? They're going to, they're going to uh, you know, just repeat the party line. Orthodox rabbis are in charge. They have sanctioned by God. Babylonian Talmud is legitimate uh, religion. And it's only for Jews, Gentiles. You don't have a part of it, and it's okay. That's, that's the party line, and he's just echoing the party line. But it has nothing to do with the apostolic message. Nothing. It's, it's, it's a message that comes later. And I think it's, it ultimately it's going to be a stumbling block for people who truly want to know the Messiah Yeshua. Rob, it sounds like you're being mean. Why do you hate the Rob and Caleb show? Honestly, I think they're vain, stupid, and incredibly self-centered. Okay, let's move on. Um, so, <laughs> I don't know why, but I love that so much. Um, okay, let's move on. You wanted us to talk about the counting of the Omer before we get to uh, bigger and uh, more pertinent things. So go for it. What do you well, want I, to say you know, about the counting? There's people who, uh, you know, in messianic circles, it's it's easy to go to the internet, kind of see what what is Chabad.org teaching this week. You know, what is H Torah <laughs> yes. teaching? Yes. What's the Torah portion? What's the Kabbalistic inside of the week? <laughs> you know, this kind of stuff. And you know, and and then sometimes you know, people friends will email, you, hey, have you seen this? And, and so you know, now here's the thing. You know, anybody who's dedicated their life to studying the Torah, you know, it, they're going to, as long as they're teaching something from the Torah, you're probably going to find something that you'll agree with in there. If you, you know what I mean? I mean, eventually, if someone's teaching from the Word of God, I mean, it's just like a Mormon. Like, I, if, you know, I could be talking with a Mormon, and we could probably find something where we both know the same Bible verse and kind of understand it 
along the same terms, right? But but when you get into the larger context, we're going, wait a minute, this is, a, you know, we're really apples and oranges here. But in any case, you know, many people probably are aware that because there's 49, you know, there's seven sevens that you count. And that seven is a this number associated with Kabbalah. And there's a this idea of, of now, if nobody's ever encountered this, I feel like kind of foolish bringing it up, but I, I figured some be, some of our listeners have encountered this, that each day of the Omer, you're supposed to uh, meditate on a certain, um, a certain uh, attribute, a certain character attribute, that this is a time of re- uh, refining your soul, going through a systematic, uh, according to this tree of life, you know, the... the Kabbalistic tree of life that came out in the Middle Ages, and I, I just think you know, don't don't buy into that. You know, don't don't uh, don't pursue that as like the the true meaning. That's it. That's a medieval interpretation, you know, that comes much later. And uh, uh, anyway, I'm sorry but, for the dings. People keep. Oh, uh, People keep text messaging, text messaging me. I don't know how to turn notifications off on that on my uh, on my computer, so I apologize. Oh, that's all right. I'm not hearing it. Um, so I heard in in terms of the counting of the Omer, one of the things that I heard recently was that um, it was like every single one is a is a level, forty nine levels of of righteousness. You have to come up a level each time to uh, until you can reach the I mean, this is obviously Kabbalistic, but it's like you have to come up 49 levels of righteousness before you can uh, be with God at Shavuot. Right. And yeah. so, yeah, I mean, nonsense, obviously. Um, anyway, keep but going. in any case, you know, I, to me, I think that there, there's a, a, a significance that it has for me that I thought I'd share. And it's, it's a bit, you know, if I want to say midrashic, you know, I can't prove that this is the true meaning. But there's the same word Omer that that is in Leviticus interpreted as the sheaf, right? The first the cut of the grain. Omer is a is the dry measure. Right? It's a dry measure of grain. You find I think it's a tenth of an apha. But Omer is first given in Exodus with the giving of the Shabbat and the giving of the manna. And the, that's where we see the word Omer the most. Is the counting every day an omer for each person was the was the measure that a person would gather for themselves on that day. If mm-hmm. they tried to gather more than an omer, it would spoil. If they tried to, you know, save it for the next day or whatever. So the giving of the manna to me and the teaching of of the Shabbat cycles that comes before even giving of the Torah, right? It's when they're in the wilderness, Exodus fifteen and sixteen. Is, is like the lesson of daily bread in the, the prayer of the Talmudim, or what we call the Lord's Prayer. Mm-hmm. Give us this day our daily bread. In other words, counting on Omer is remembering to focus on what God has given us today, that he's given us life to, be a, to, to take stock of all the amazing blessings that he has provided for us in, in this day, and to not worry about tomorrow, to trust in his provision, and the counting of the Omer, to me, is, is a time of bringing that lesson into an actual, you know, calendrical practice. 
And it's just one day, the next day, the next day. And in time, at the divinely ordained time, which is the represented after the seventh seven, is where he, God does his, he works in some mighty way intervening in history, whether it's giving of the Torah, whether it's in Acts chapter 2, of course we know the giving of the Ruach HaKodesh and the preaching of, of the gospel where people are hearing it in, in their own languages and um, the fact that Yeshua during this time, this is the time, these 40 days, this is another thing that's fun to talk about and another place where it's a little bit fuzzy, but we know that it was during this time that Yeshua for 40 days and 40 nights, I think it's 40 days maybe in Luke, or in Acts chapter 1, Luke tells us, Yeshua was teaching his disciples about the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And it's on the 40th day, or after the 40th day, I think it is, that Yeshua ascends. And so I like to think of it, and this is, this is my interpretation, and you know, I can't prove it, but that Yeshua would have ascended after the sixth seven. So in other words, for six weeks after the resurrection, you know, I think we, you know, we start counting the Omer. Somewhere at the end of the sixth week, the sixth seven is when Yeshua ascends, and the disciples are apart from Yeshua for one more seven for the seventh seven, waiting upon his command, waiting in Jerusalem. And then after the completion of that seventh seven is, is the giving of the Spirit at Shavuot, Shavuot or yeah. Pentecost. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, that's just some of the thoughts I wanted to share. Sweet. Um, okay. Uh, very good. I was going to... I was going to talk more about that, but uh, yeah, I think that I think that you eloquently put it. That's... The way to do it. Okay. Um, let's see here. Oh, by the way, we got this. This is if we, uh, if we're ever going to use our seven red flags, which we do pretty much every week. If you don't know what those are, well, we have seven things that we look for when a teaching goes on. And so I suppose we should play our new intro music for our seven red flags because we're going to be needing those soon. Here we go. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Okay. Um, let's get into our topic for the day. I know it's been, what, 26 minutes. Let's get into our topic for the day. And to do that, we need to open the Torah resource mailbag. Mail That's it. Um, so we have uh, mail from one of our good friends who sends us topics all the time. By the way, I got to say, this was an interesting week because I had a I had a tooth pulled on Monday, and it was uh, a wisdom tooth, and they gave me a lot of pain meds uh, because they had tro. Well, yeah. Anyway, uh, so I was pretty much out of it all of Monday, and then yesterday I was having a real interesting time trying to put together show notes and put together this show. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. Are you saying you're lacking a bit in wi- you've you've dropped down at in wisdom? In the wisdom. Oh category. my word! Your jokes are just so good. Um, <laughs> um, so this is going to be interesting. Actually, I had to I had to write an email to see if I could even talk about some of this stuff. Um, I wrote a paper a long time ago on this issue. The issue is the Exodus. Okay. And so uh, we got an email from someone saying, hey, help me out here. Is this guy, what's his name, Ron Wyatt? Is Ron Wyatt uh, 
on on the level. You know, it seems like Michael Rood has endorsed him. What's up with the Exodus? Blah blah, blah all this kind of stuff. If you don't know who Ron Wyatt is, that's fine. We're going to talk about all that in just a second. Um, but I had written a paper on the Exodus and the dating of the Exodus and all that kind of stuff. Excuse me, and and uh, I was never able to release this paper, and there's a reason why. Um, I I tend okay. I happened to come across a different paper that was not yet published, and um, I'm not going to talk about how I came across that paper or anything like that. But I came across the paper that was unpublished, and it has yet to be published for various reasons. In this paper, there's some. I got to be really careful because it's not published yet, so I have to be very careful with what I say. Um, in this paper, there was some very interesting information, and I will be able to talk about some of that information. I emailed, I made, I did some, e- I sent out some emails and asked people how much of this uh, of this information I could actually talk about. So we're going to get to that in a little bit, but. First, uh, let's talk about Wyatt. Okay, so some people say that the site where Israel crossed the Red Sea has been found. Okay, now I want to be very clear before we go too far with this. You can't be dogma- I can't be dogmatic about this. Uh, Ron Wyatt basically says that he found the place where Israel crossed the Red Sea, and he and he did this because he claims that there is chariot wheels, human bones, and horse bones that have been found in the Gulf of Aqaba. These claims are made largely by Ron Wyatt. Michael Rood has supported Wyatt's claims, making these claims well well known in the messianic circles. Okay, so basically this guy says, look, I found these I found these cor- this coral in uh the which is on somewhat of a land bridge, okay? And uh underneath the water, and the coral is in the shape of wheels and Chariot axles. Is everyone following me so far? Okay, so he si- he sees this coral. He says, "Oh my word, this is uh, what has happened. Is this coral has grown over chariot wheels, chariot axles?" Okay. Um. So this is basic, and this is basically his proof for uh, this is where Israel crossed. I'm now. There's been documentaries on this and everything. I'm not going to be super dogmatic about this, but let's look at it a little bit. Okay. Much more. uh, This is a quote from uh, Egyptian chariot wheels found at the bottom of the Red Sea unproven. Okay. And this is an article. You can find it in the show notes. Uh, He says, quote, much of this e-rumor is based on the findings of Ron Wyatt, a colorful and controversial amateur archaeologist who claimed to have found Noah's Ark, the biblical Ark of the Covenant, the location of Sodom and Gomorrah, the Tower of Babel, the true site of Mount Sinai, the true site of the crucifixion of Jesus, and the original stones of the Ten Commandments. Um, so, just right there. I mean, listen to the everything that the guy claims he's found. Right? right there, it seems a little bit far-fetched to me. If he would have said, hey, I found the crossing of the Red Sea, maybe. Okay, let's look at the evidence. But when you say that you found the Ark of the Covenant, the location of Sodom and Gomorrah, the Tower of Babel, the true Mount Sinai, the place of the crucifixion, the regional stone tablets of the Ten Commandments, really? We're supposed to believe this? Have you seen the 
Have you been to the guy uh, website pinkoski.com? No, I have not. It's it's the guy who runs Ron Wyatt's uh, museum of God's treasures. Okay. And he's got a picture of Ron Wyatt. It looks like Indiana Jones. He's got the Indiana Jones hat. Of course. On. Yeah. Anyway, he what he says in in one of these websites, he says, let me see if I can find it here, uh, that Ron Wyatt, uh, he considers Ron Wyatt to be sitting in Moses' seat. He says... Uh, well, that's interesting. <laughs> uh, yeah. So this Pinkoski guy says... Uh, if Ron, Ron was used by God, I believe he was, to find the seven major biblical archaeological discoveries that were featured in the museum that I managed for Ron, and nearly all these things relate to things in Moses' life, there is obviously a link between Moses and Ron. One of the characteristics of Moses was that he was humble, as was Ron. Sorry. <laughs> I knew Ron. I worked for him for 10 years. A true servant of God will realize that it is an awesome blessing to be used in an important work for the Lord, they will constantly remember their shortcomings and flaws and that they really have nothing to brag about. Ron was just like that. Anyway, so this guy says that there's a definite, an ob- he says there's an obvious link between Moses and Ron Wyatt, and that's why he, quote, put, quote, sitting in Moses' seat is, a com- he says, a common sense observation. Well, Ron Wyatt, let's, let, okay, let, uh, for our listeners, Ron Wyatt actually died of cancer in 1999. So he's no longer uh, with us. He's uh, you know, he's he's passed on. He's with the Lord. Um, so I'm not trying to put the guy down. I'm just saying that the claims that he has made, it seems like some of them are very far-fetched. And Andre says that he doesn't know about the Tower of Babel. Um, I am not aware of that e- either. However, all I'm doing is quoting out of Egyptian chariot wheels found at the bottom of the sea unproven. Okay, let's listen to what Michael Rood has to say about our friend Michael Rood. Um, let's see what he has to say about Mr. Wyatt. Um, I have a couple of clips here. Hang on just a sec. Trying to load these up here. Let's see what he has to say. I went home, and at about midnight, after teaching all day long, I put that video in. I watched it. I rewound it. I watched it. I rewound it. I watched it until 5 o'clock in the morning, and I said, this is the greatest tool I have ever had in my hands in my life. Hang on. Wait. Wait. I love that. Oh, we got to pause it. So this is the greatest tool. This DVD is the greatest tool that that, uh, Michael Rood has ever had in his hand. It could have been a DVD. Was it a VHS? Did he rewind it? Oh, VHS. Yes, VHS. So... Uh, this VHS tape is the greatest tool Michael Rood has ever had in his hand, ever. Not the Bible. Not the Word of God. No. This VHS about the 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 chariot wheels in the sea. Okay, here we go. ...hands in my life. And I thought, why has this not spread like wildfire through the Christian church? Because all the archaeologists rejected. I am not an unaware person. I didn't consider myself completely out of the loop. But yet, some of this had been out for years, and I had no idea. Why haven't I heard about it? Okay, so Michael Rood obviously thinks that this is the greatest thing since, since, uh, well, better than the Bible, apparently, because it's the greatest tool he's ever had in his hand. Um, So... This uh, this is a quote from another article. I'm just going down the list here. Uh, I deserve a ding, apparently. Why do I? Okay, anachronistic. I deserve a ding. <laughs> oh, because you said DVD, maybe. Ah, okay. uh, DVD. I don't know. Okay. 
Um, there you go. Um, so from this is from an article, Ron Wyatt and Those Egyptian Chariot Wheels by Michael Heiser, who I know. He works for Lagos. He's down at uh, the ETS and SBL every year. Um, so anyway, I, I'm not trying to... He's a real scholar. He's, a, he's, on, he's on the level, okay, this, uh, this Michael Heiser guy. I left a link for this in your show notes, by the way. Did, and this is a quote from his paper, did Wyatt ever bring one of these out of the water? He's talking about the so-called chariot wheels found in, uh, in the Gulf of, of Aqaba. Um, the link below claims so, but as is so common with p- paleo babble, <laughs> I like he coins this word paleo babble, uh, paleo babble, no independent peer reviewed examination by archaeologists and other specialists to see if they were merely coral formations was ever conducted and published. But aside from that, there are the obvious logical problems. If it was a chariot wheel, how would one know it was Egyptian? If Egyptian, how would one know it was related to the Exodus event? And if it was from the event, didn't anyone notice the incongruity of the seafloor not being littered with these wheels? Good point. Okay, so let's see what uh, let's see what else. Uh, okay, let's see what else Rude has to say about uh, his friend Wyatt here. And at the end of that period of time, the last night in his home after dinner, the things that he shared with me, then I knew there was one thing that I had to share with him. And when I did, the lights went on, and he gave me the confirmation, and when I walked out of there, I knew that he was telling the truth. I knew that he had found the Ark of the Covenant, and it was not a light thing. I knew that he had found the Red Sea crossing site. This is not fiction. And then I went back and reread all that anti-Ron Wyatt literature, and I found that this is all coming from people who did not have any firsthand information. Okay, so Rude now claims, and if, if you don't listen to the show very often, we are not very big fans of Michael Rude. Um, yeah, anyway, and for these kind of reasons, he uh, he now says that the people who... Um, who are speaking against Wyatt don't have any firsthand information. They don't know what's going on. Uh, you should have firsthand information. So, with that in mind, that these people don't have firsthand information, I'd like to play this for you. From the Israeli Antiquities Authority, dear so-and-so, thank you for your fax letter dated 16th of November 1998 asking about Ron Wyatt. We cannot confirm his fines and have no information about them. Ron White has never received a license from the Israeli Antiquities Authority to excavate in Israel. If he says he has excavated in Israel, he has committed an illegal act since any every excavation in Israel must be licensed by our authority or our predecessor, the Israeli Department of Antiquities. Legitimate archaeology finds are published in professional journals or by universities and other recognised scientific institutes. Sincerely yours, Osnat Goaz, spokeswoman for Department of Education Information. I would think that the IAA has first-hand knowledge. Uh, now, of course, that wasn't talking about the Egyptian Red, Cro- no, but see, uh, Red the, Sea the Crossing. The Jim Pinkowski guy who ran that museum for years says you won't get verification because the government doesn't want it known. So in other words, this is where the conspiracy card gets played. Yeah, of course. 
Yeah, of course. And that's and that's exactly so. That clip, I I put a link to that clip. That clip is actually the person's actually reading that letter in front of Ron Wyatt. Okay, and that's exactly what Wyatt responds with. He responds with, "Well, uh, they yeah they they say that because if if people really knew uh, what I had found." You know, it would be a huge hubbub, and they're and they're not. They don't want anybody to know, so they're actually lying about it to try to save face. It reminds me of how Mormonism took off. Seriously, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so here you go. From Egyptian chariot wheels found at the bottom of the Red Sea, unproven. Once again, this is in your show notes. The bottom line is that at this point, all that all that seems to exist to support the claims of chariot parts on the bottom of the Red Sea are pictures, most of which are coral formations. No documented artifacts have been retrieved and preserved from the site, and now the Egyptian government prohibits bringing any findings to the surface to the to the questions, may, so that questions may remain for the for a long time to come. Oh, so uh, so questions may remain for a long time to come. Um, the other thing is is that I saw now I know the History Channel. You can't trust the History Channel. It's uh, like. I, I I don't know how they can call themselves the History Channel. All right, it's like the. Anyway, okay. Um, the History Channel talked about this, and when they did their documentary, they showed that there are tons of coral formations that look like this all over the Red Sea. It's not in this one, you know, these cor- this kind of coral grows like this. So take it- in some of the some of the reading I did, one gal was really inspired by uh, Ron Wyatt and a. a Look to me, and I was skimming a lot of material. So I, but I, I think that she and her husband or group went. They actually went there and scuba dived, and did some scuba diving, I guess. And she was finding stuff all over the place, and it turned out all to be coral. But she, she said at first, you know, they had to point it out to her, and she came back telling Ron Wyatt that she had found all this other stuff, and then Ryan Wyatt in a like, <laughs> Ron Wyatt's team, or whatever, had to call him and say no. We found the real stuff. The stuff you saw doesn't really count, or what you're seeing is just coral. But we found the real thing. So, in other words, that's even come back to confront them, and them, you know, then the Ron Wyatt team wanting to say, you know, our what we found was not coral. What you saw was coral. Yeah. All right, let's move on. So this is where we're going to get real. This is like what I really enjoy. I wrote a paper on the date of the Exodus, okay? And let's see here. I don't know. I don't even know where to start here. Let's start with this. Um, there are two main time frames given by scholars today. One is the 1400s BCE. Now, now this can slide, okay? It could be, you know, some scholars say it's early in the 1400s, like four, 1490. Some say it's in the middle, 1450s. A real famous date is 1446 BCE, okay? And this is when the children of Israel left Egypt. Some say it's, uh, you know, uh, in the late 1400s, like 1410. So it slides all over the place, okay? Uh, The other popular date of the Exodus leaving and we're talking about this because it's Passover. So if you haven't figured that out yet, um, it's Passover now. If you are a Christian brother or sister who does not celebrate Passover, I would highly recommend doing so. It is a joy. Anyway, so the other uh, the other famous date that some scholars take, which is becoming less and less popular, is sometime in the 1200s BCE. Most conservative scholars take t- uh, some time in the 1400s. 
as the date of the Exodus. Okay, so let's listen to Now, I just found this is a random clip. I don't know who this person is. I don't know anything about it, but uh, I like the clip. And so let's play it. Through biblical chronology and studies on dating as to when these events took place. And, uh, but I think, therefore, the conservative or early date view is 1446 B.C. And the reason for that is because I, from the text of Scripture, we have the language in 1 Kings, for example, chapter 6 and verse 1, where it says, in the fourth year of the reign of King Solomon, uh, you have uh, Solomon beginning to build the temple in Jerusalem. If you take uh, that, that clearly is the fourth year of his reign. We know from uh, biblical studies and chronology and et cetera that uh, the King Saul reigned from 1050 to 1010, King David from approximately 1010 to 970, and then of course King Solomon from 970 to 930 before the divided kingdom. So that would be 966 BC. But then when you add 480th year, because it says in the 480th year after they left Egypt, you come up with 1446. It's a very simple, derived from the text of Scripture, which should be our starting point. So, Okay, so he's trying to prove that uh, 1446 BCE is the time when the when the uh, Israelis came over, uh, you know, crossed over the Red Sea. I don't necessarily have a problem with that. Uh, I don't think that's exactly where I date it. The, the problem is, is that you can't, once again, you can't be dogmatic on this. Uh, it could slide qu- quite a bit, honestly. And uh, so there's all sorts of other archaeological evidence that has to come into this uh, debate, which is things like the conquering of Jericho, in which time Jericho, Jericho was conquered more than once. Uh, So you have to take those kind of things um, and and take them all into consideration. Dr. Kenneth Kitchen, who is one of the leading Egyptologists today, my father thought he had passed, but I'm pretty sure he's still alive. He's very old, but I'm I'm pretty sure he's still around. Do you know for sure? Uh, Nope. No? Okay. Dr. Kenneth Kitchen is one of the leading scholars on Egyptology and is considered a conservative within his field as he believes in the Bible and that it is historical places. Yeah, he places the date of the Exodus between 1304-1290. So he is actually, even though he's considered a conservative scholar, because a lot of the people who are are pushing for a, you know, 1200s is, is... very liberal scholars and they're doing that because they're saying it's not you know it's not historical or um a lot of the scriptures made up those kind of things but kenneth kitchen doesn't say that and kenneth kitchen is a good scholar so it surprises me that he still holds to a 1304 yeah and he's i just looked he, he's born in 1932 he's still around there you go. as a matter of fact he 2012 he's got a, a book out so there you go still writing um Okay, so then we have uh, this from The Destruction of Mankind. Now, like I said, uh, I'm going to reference some other things here in a few minutes, but let's go to The Destruction of Mankind. This is a, a e- Egyptian piece of work, okay? Uh, this Egyptian text seems to have very close similarities to the Exodus story of the Bible. Although the story has been changed to place the Egyptians in a better light and make the Egyptian god God seem victorious, the parallels and... Uh, the parallels are interesting, to say the least. This text is referred to by several names, including the Book of the Heavenly Cow and Deliverance of Mankind from Destruction. Uh, I'm reading, by the way, from the paper that I never published, my paper that I never published. As stated by Wim Van Den Dungen, 
I don't know who that is, but I found this uh, article online. It was a very interesting article, and I believe it was pretty well done. Uh, he states, the first passage from the book of the heavenly cow are attested on the interior left back panels of the outermost of the four glided shrines discovered in 1923 by Carter in KV62, the tomb of Tutankhamun, uh, which was 1333 to 1323 BCE. Okay, so this is a very, uh, this is a very early, early uh, hieroglyphs, and published by uh, Pyankov in 1955. And he and there's he uh, there's a reference there. This is not only the place that this text is found. However, this legend also quote appears on the walls of the tombs of Seti the uh, first, Ramsey the second, and Ramsey the third of Thebes. Its date is thus 14th to 12th centuries BC. Although the language used. And the corrupted state of the text show that it followed an older original. Now, why am I bringing all this up? And actually, I need to move now to a different thing. This might take me a second to find. Why am I bringing all this up? I'm bringing this up because um, basically what you have is you have this desert people that uh, go against Ray. The god. This is in this uh, story. This this god Ray. Okay, and. Uh, th- they plot against this god Ray, and they, uh, I forget exactly how it goes, but basically what happens is this god falls asleep. Um, let me get up here. Uh, this god falls asleep, and what happens, uh, they put something, in, they put too much mash in his beer, and the beer flows out, and it's red. So the mash is, uh, let's see here. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm looking for something specific. Okay. There are different English translations of this text. Mankind plots against the god Ray and flees to the desert. Okay, so see if you hear any similarities between the children of Israel and this story of the god Ray. Ray employs the help of other Egyptian gods to help him destroy this people. But the plan is, is thwarted. When Ray has beer made and those brewing the beer add red mash to his ingredients, the text tells us that this red beer became like human blood. In the narrative, a goddess has been chosen to help kill the fleeing mankind. Ray is painted as having compassion and decides to spare the people. He does this by pouring the red beer out over the fields. And so uh, there have been scholars who have hypothesized that this was actually the the uh, the plague of, of blood. The goddess then wakes to find this beer, gets drunk, and forgets to kill mankind. <laughs> Oops, I forgot. Um, so anyway, I think that it's interesting. So this is one thing that's attested to as perhaps, uh, you know, a very, a very early work before, uh, you know, and possibly it's the Egyptian, uh, the Egyptian retelling of the story of, of the Exodus. Of course, they spin everything in a different light, right? They spin it all so that, uh, their gods are, are, uh, are seen as good and doing the right thing. Uh, anything to add here? Well, sure, that's possible. That's possible, or it, or it could even be the other way around. It could be that you know when God in the Exodus says He's going to execute judgment on the gods of Israel, or pardon me, I misspoke. On the God uh, that the God of Israel is going to execute judgment on the gods of uh, Egypt, and that in each of these plagues there is a marked theological ramification from the Egyptian theology. You know what I mean? From the Egyptian uh, way of thinking of the world and and their deities, etc. And so I think uh, 
it could be either way. Yeah, no doubt. In terms of in terms of order. Okay, so or it could just be that they're not related. I suppose too. I it mean, could be that they're to, not related. I'm not without saying without multiple witnesses. Yeah, and I'm not well. And ha ha ha, multiple witnesses. Okay, let's get into it then. <laughs> um, so I get once again, I got to be very careful because I I I can't speak fully about um, the unpublished paper that I have come across. Um, so the first thing I want to do is I want to set out some of the dates, okay, of some of the pharaohs. Because I think that this will shed light. So uh, our listeners might find this very uninteresting. And if that's the if that's the case, then I apologize. I find this kind of stuff like super interesting. This is I, like I, I get all giddy when I talk about this stuff because, like I said, you can't be dogmatic about it. But it really is quite interesting. And uh, trying it's like a puzzle. It's like a puzzle. You're trying to piece together all these pieces of history to see how it all fits together. Um, so I don't even know where to start here. We will begin looking at the dates of the pharaohs beginning with the I and we'll highlight two of those widely accepted dates for the 18th dynasty. A popular view of the chronology of the pharaohs is laid out by Siegfried J. Schwantes. I'm probably butchering his name. Okay, so I know that this, I'm not going to read this whole thing. Um, actually, maybe I will. Okay, so Tutmos the first and second, 1524 to 1502 BCE. Hatshepsut was 1501 to uh, 1480. Now, this is by this scholar, uh, Siegfried. Now, Hatshepsut, if, if those are of our listeners who might not know, Hatshepsut was a female pharaoh, which was very kind of not, it was very unusual, Okay. Uh, Tutmos III was 1480 to 1448, according to this chronology. Amenhotep II was 1448 to 1442. And uh, Amenhotep IV was 1422 to 1413. Okay, so um, now that's pretty much the the one that I like. I like that kind of chronology. So Tutmos I and II, 1524 to uh, 1502. Um and then Tutmos the third was fourteen eighty to fourteen forty eight. Okay, so the second chronology laid out by Kenneth Kitchen. I'm not going to read this whole thing. He puts Tutmos the first in fifteen o four to fourteen ninety two, and then he puts Tutmos the third, and that's really I think where we're going to look uh, quite heavily, fourteen seventy nine to fourteen twenty five. Now, why am I even talking about this? Okay, well there is a tomb called the Amduat, and the Amduat is. Um, well, it's the tomb, I believe, of Tutmosis the Third. Okay, and basically, the Amduat is is broken up into different hours. Okay, and each story has different hours. I'm sorry, by the way, if uh, people are talking on the forum and I'm not responding. Uh, I uh, I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to focus in here. So on the walls of the Amduat are color hier- hier- hieroglyphs. Okay. Hours 5 and 10 depict the parting of water and then show people floating in what looks like watery graves. Okay, so that's number one. So you have what looks like um, water on one side, dry land, then water on the other, like a wall of water. Okay, and then uh, you also have a depiction of bodies floating in water. Okay, in hour six of the Andwat, there's a clear picture of a person with a royal scarab on his head floating in water which can only be explained as a person of royalty. Um, so you have what looks like a pharaoh floating in water. Now this is all, this is all highly controversial, first of all, because it, 
I think it proves the the Exodus story. Um, and like I said, I'm trying to be very careful what I'm saying here because uh, this is unpublished work at this point. Um, however, I have personally seen the pictures of these uh, of these. Uh, hieroglyphs. Okay, so this actually, if it's uh, if you take it as uh, Tetmos the Third's tomb, then uh, you have what looks like hieroglyphs of the Exodus story long before the tw- the twelve hundreds, which would basically prove Kenneth Kitchen's uh, chronology wrong. Um, another picture picture of the Amduat of the Amduat shows a pathway of the sea that would match quite well with the biblical exit, exit, exit route of the Israelites. Um, I'm having to skip a bunch of this. It also depicts soldiers floating in the water. Um, so one of the reasons that this is, uh, this is an extremely uh, controversial, I would say, uh, thing, and I think that one of the reasons that we don't have it yet is because publishers aren't, too keen to uh, disprove a bunch of scholars. Um, so, I'll read a little bit here. This is on. This is from me. Since these hieroglyphs are depicted in the tomb of Tutmos the Third, it is only logical to place the date of the Exodus from Egypt before this ruler. Even if we accept Kitchen's chronology of the pharaohs, this places a date before 1425 and most likely earlier. It is unlikely that the tomb of of a pharaoh that died a sudden death by drowning would not have this story depicted on the walls of his tomb. It is possible that the body of pharaoh could have been found after a watery death in the uh, Exodus, but Tutmos III's body has been recovered in his lavish tomb. If the hieroglyphs in Tutmos III's tomb are in fact a depiction of the Exodus, then we must start to look at the pharaohs before him as possible candidates for the pharaoh of the Exodus. The pharaoh that preceded Tutmos III was the first female pharaoh the rule, uh, to rule the kingdom. Hatshepsut was Tutmos III's half-sister and aunt. She was uh, she was first married to Tutmos II, who reigned before her. It is not clear how long Tutmos II reigned, or if his blood was fully royal. It is possible that his mother was not of the kingly line. Some might turn to Tutmos II as the king that died in the Exodus story since his wife, Hatshepsut, took the throne directly after him, and since his reign is disputed in terms of length. It is true that there is a little to be, that there is little to be known of uh, Tutmos II, and we could make a case for this pharaoh being the one that followed the Israelites into the parted water. Another good candidate for our drowned pharaoh is Tutmos I. This pharaoh had a son named Waj, Wajmos that died before he was able to take the throne. Hmm. Right. Another interesting piece of information is the mummy that has been declared to be Tutmos I has now come into question. And I write a whole section on this, uh, this pharaoh's body not really being his body. Um, let me go down here. I'm going to read my conclusion. Sorry, I know this is a lot of reading. So, uh, But uh, I, think that one of the, I think that this is so interesting because basically you have all these, these pharaohs or all these, uh, all these scholars saying, oh, no, no, no. First of all, the Bible's not historically accurate. And then you have these scholars saying, well, okay, uh, even if there was a exodus, it was super late. It was in the 1200s. But then what you have is you have these, uh, 
these hieroglyphs of uh, what looks like parted water, and it looks like soldiers drowning in water and a pharaoh dying in water on the grave of a pharaoh that at the very latest was at 1425, died in 1425. Am I the only one that finds that super exciting and interesting, Rob? I think it's interesting. I would like to see the... I mean, I'm just in the unknown about it because, you know, it'd be nice to see the published work, you know, on on this, maybe with some nice pictures and, and stuff like that. I'm with um, you on that. I'm absolutely with you on that. Okay. Um, I'm going to wrap this up here. Let's see here. Um, <coughs> pardon me. Okay. Let's wrap this up here. Uh, I'll read a little bit of my conclusion. Although there are excellent scholars such as K.A. Kitchen who holds the late date of the Exodus, we must start to look at some of the striking imagery that is preceded in the hieroglyphs of the Egyptians themselves. And I do hope that this paper that uh, was, was scheduled to come out much earlier uh, finally, gets, finally gets published. Um, yeah. The story of the god Ray following a desert people and the death of soldiers and a pharaoh himself on the walls of the Amduat and eventually the destruction of mankind and the Book of the Gates cannot be overlooked in the dating of such monumental events. So you have three witnesses. Um, and granted, one of them might be a little bit later, but you have three Egyptian witnesses uh, that could be interpreted as the exodus from Egypt. Anyway, so that's uh, that's what I have in terms of, of the exodus of Egypt. And um, uh, as soon as... So any- basically, the, the nuts and bolts of that, at least in terms of practical what people are going to be able to find is that it looks like there is possibly in the future going to be a publication of images from the Pharaoh's tomb that have uh, pictures of water with with drowning Egyptians. Let's see what we get in a... uh, And then that... So that, that would be great to see. Let's see uh, pictures. Let's see if we can find anything here in in the Google. Um, images for Amduat. Um, I don't think... Um, well, maybe I'll have to scour these at a later date. Oh, here's one. So the one of the pharaoh is actually... It looks like you can find that on Google. Maybe I should... I'll post that then. Maybe I'll post it in our uh, on our yeah, page. post it in our box there. Um, let's see here, and let me see if I, I'm still looking for the one. What I'll do is um, I will look for some of these, and if I find more of them, whatever ones I find on Google, on the skull, um, I will send out in our next show notes, so that everyone can look at them. Cool. Sound good? Yeah, yeah. Maybe there's other people that have posted these images online, even though they're maybe not official or something. Well, it looks like one of them is official. The pharaoh drowning in water looks like it's definitely official. And um, But the person who wrote the paper that I'm talking about hasn't, hasn't released his, his paper yet. And okay. yeah, so um, that's where I need to be very careful. Um, but I will. Here's what I'll do. I'll post these. Uh, I'll post whatever pictures I can find that I'm looking at. 
Um, I will post them in the uh, in the show notes for next week. So if you don't have show notes already, then go to the Robin Caleb Show page on Torah Resource Radio and sign up for them. You can sign up for them um, right there on our show notes. Okay, uh, do we want to talk about leaven at all? I mean, have you have you thought about that at all? What what have you taken? I guess that's one question I want to ask you, Rob. What have you taken away from this year's Passover? We're, for those who might not know, we're in the what? Uh, we're coming up towards the end now, actually. We're, I think yeah, we're, we're about halfway through. Sixth day, fifth day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, boy, there's been a lot, a lot going on in our life. We've been um, hosting people staying at, at our place, mm-hmm. and so it. We're my wife and I last night. We realized that. Wow, I mean, as much as a blessing is, it's like we're really tired. We're <laughs> yeah. just like really just exhausted, and uh, thankfully, you know, we're not getting sick or anything at this point. Um, and we usually have a weekly date night, you know, or date afternoon where we go spend time together. But we've had to, we've punted that. We've had to just because of, you know, other stuff going on. And boy, and it's like, Lord, you know, give us strength, help us to to just depend on you and know that know that we're in good hands and and help us to get the rest we need but uh anyway that so that's that's a part of it it's just a re- there's kind of this refining process i think we're going through as we're you know trying to be faithful and and observe the just the practical aspects of of the commandment we had adam and mary smith come to our house which was awesome they stayed with us and uh yeah, we had a great, great Seder. Right on. Uh, um, yeah, you know, we're. It's interesting. I, actually, I should share. I guess, I'll share a couple of things. There was, uh, you know, somebody emailed me recently and said uh, I've been having some big problems, uh, some life problems and whatnot. And uh, he basically came to me because he heard the Robin Caleb show, and uh, he was, you know, he started asking questions. We're still in a dialogue, but that was, uh, you know, it was just kind of really encouraging that this person kind of, I don't know, found found the Robin Caleb show, and it's like, wow, the Robin Caleb show is doing something good. Yeah, um, I, I was encouraged that to see pictures of of a bumper sticker. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> People putting bumper stickers on their car. I just that was really encouraging to me to see. I was like, wow. Yeah, you I know, because it's it's here, you know, recording this distance. Caleb, you and I aren't even in the same room, you know, so or city. It's, it feels a little bit, yeah, or a city. It feels a little bit, um, you know, it's strange here. We're talking into a microphone and not sure who's listening and what they're thinking about, what they're hearing. And, we, you know, I go back and forth in my head sometimes wondering, you know, is it... Are we really doing anything? Yeah, is this, hel- is this helpful for people? Um, you know, of course, we've had a lot of people give us complaint emails, you know, and that's, <laughs> that's fine. But we've also had some very encouraging emails. And so... Um, Sometimes I wonder, you know, what are we going to talk about? You know, is there anything for us to talk about this week? And um, again, though, just back to the thing, you know, I think we just we just stick with it. You know, as long as the Lord provides the the means for us to do it, I just say we just keep at it and and not worry too much. You know, let it let it flow. No doubt. Let it flow. Let it flow. Oh, no. Okay. No, no, no. One other. Can I share one other side thing? Yeah, go for it. I watched this. Uh, I like documentaries, so and I, I've got we've got this Netflix thing, and and so I always look through the documentaries to see. There's one uh, on Atari, and oh, I'm love Atari. kind of dating myself because I was a teenager, you know, in the '80s, and 
the Atari was like the hot thing, the 2600 and all these little cartridges. But it's called the Atari Game Over. And it's a history about how there's a myth that with the release after the movie E.T. came out by Steven Spielberg, which was like this major movie of all time probably in the early 80s, that Atari created this video game called E.T. And they buried a bunch of them oh, in, yeah. in the, some landfill. And so the legend was that there were all these old cartridges buried. So the guy, this guy created a uh, documentary, and he goes and interviews all the people that were involved in Atari in the 70s and its success and talked about how it, it rose and was just doing millions and millions of dollars, and then it kind of basically went bankrupt more or less well that game was 80s. like that game was like the worst the the et game was like the worst game ever made ever yeah it's it's yeah all these people say that and so what they do is they investigate the myth and they say that it was the downfall of atari and what they go through and show is is that and the, a guy makes a great statement i almost wanted to make it a soundbite he says you know a sh- a simple and concise answer will always have more power than a complex one that's true and they basically, over the course of the documentary, show that the, this E.T. game was not, it, that there's a mythological status of it becoming, oh, it's the worst video game ever, and that it was the reason for Atari's downfall. And because that's easy to remember, and it's got a little bit of hype to it, it, be, it takes on truth. And in fact, over the course of this documentary, they show that they show the truth. But this core, this core point that guy made, I think he was one of the co-founders of Atari back in the early '70s, was a simple, concise answer will always have more power in society than a complex answer that is truthful. And I think that applies to this whole like Ron Wyatt thing, you know, this idea of. Complexity is is the nature of our faith walk. You know, the reason we need faith is because we don't know. You know, we don't have all the answers. We need we're we're trusting God. And when someone's trying to package a religion, here's the religion for you. You just do this, 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 and you're you're Jewish, and you're you're in. (laughs) Or do this, 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 this. If you're if you're if you're real Catholic, you'll do this, 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 and this. And and it's like, and you're covered. You know, and if someone wants religion, like if FFOZ wants, you know, Judaism as their religion, then they can go to the rabbis and decide which rabbis interpret, you know, version, which version of Judaism they want to stick with and and then claim and preach that that's the real deal. You know, that's that's their prerogative. Um, I don't I, I think those are the wrong categories. That's not the, the proper thought world. Hashkafa, <laughs> uh, the worldview, if we want to use that word, um, when it comes to discipleship, uh, discipleship to Yeshua, it's it's, it, you know, and and that's that's my stand. Annette Gaines wants to know if we've talked about uh, leaven historically and how we can apply it to our lives. Well, I think that that's pretty easy. I don't think that that's. Uh, I think that that's. I mean, it's sin. Try to get the sin out of your life, and. Uh, the only way that you can get sin fully out of your life is with, you know, with the Messiah. That's right. You know, that, that uh, yeah. you know, we, we saw, I think, last week, Artos. Our, our people had made the argument that, oh, when Yeshua blessed the bread and broke it, it was Artos, and that's leavened. We've shown that that's, that's a false claim. Artos can, can refer to unleavened bread. So that's something we did cover. But Paul 
Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians that our true nature in Messiah is is what he he says it's the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth that that um, we're not thinking and in chapter 4 he talks about don't don't think yourself so important you know don't don't think of yourself more highly than than you are and that's our our old man our old nature wants to do that we want to be more important than you know we want to we want to be important we want to matter we want um you know, we want to be right, all these kinds of things. And we've got we to gotta be on guard for those inclinations and recognize that our, our, we, we rest in the shalom of, of the work of Messiah Yeshua. And yes, we, we do want to study the scriptures and we want to, to uh, be, you know, find conviction in how we read and interpret the scriptures. But that, that knowledge is God doesn't give us that knowledge so that we can beat somebody else over the head with it. Um, because, you know, none of us will be at perfect knowledge. We're always increasing in that realm and learning where works in progress. But resting in, in the work of Messiah Yeshua is, is one of the big ones, is that uh, we're not boasting. If you read those first couple chapters of First Corinthians, he talks about people who are boasting, uh, they're arrogant. Um, there's sexual immorality that Paul talks about. Pride, all these things that are not part of of our life in Messiah Yeshua. Those any anybody who's in Messiah that has issues with pride or arrogance, you know, those things are going to be pruned off of us one way or another, you know, and. Anything that's sin, anything that in, is in our life that is not stemming from the life of Messiah Yeshua is going to be pruned off. It, it's not going to, you know, it's going to, it's not part of our eternal life. The only part of our life that's part of eternal, that's eternal life is that life that we have that comes right from Yeshua. And it's that that puts us in our place. It puts us in our place that we are nothing without him. Apart from him, we can do nothing, and it's just abiding in the gratitude and joy of, of the fact of his grace and his love. That's it. Anything above and beyond that is uh, that we try to you know, puff ourselves up is we're going to be corrected on it sooner or later. I see leaven as, as there's two different uh, things going on here. You have leaven, which represents sin. We try to get it out of our houses, out of our lives, but you never can. No matter what you always like, I mean, I think everyone that I've talked to, it's like after you, after you've cleaned it all out and everything, uh, you say the, the first blessing, you have your Passover Seder. And then the next day it's like, you're looking around and oh man, you know, you find a loaf of bread on top of your refrigerator or something that you overlooked or, or, you know, or something in the, in the crack of your couch or something like that. Um, so no matter what you, you can't get it out. The only way that you can get all of the leaven out is with the Messiah. The other thing that, that, uh, we have to remember is that, uh, to, to truly be redeemed, to follow the Messiah, we have to give things up. We can't wait around for the things of the world to, uh, to say, because we, because we like them. It's just like Lot's wife. She looked back, she longed for, you know, for her life and, uh, the the story of the redemption of of Israel out of Egypt is is, is the story of our personal 
uh, salvation as well. So God says, okay, it's time. I'm calling you to me. And what do we do? We say yes. We can't say, wait just a second. Let me, you know, let me, I, I like this sin too much. So I'm going to hold on to this. No, God says, come with us now or come with me now. You're mine now. And you drop it all in you and, and that's it. Uh, so that's what I, that's what I take away from it. Okay. Uh, anything else before we go? Nope. Okay. Um, in that case, uh, please remember, you are more than w- welcome to send us show ideas. If you want us to talk about something specific, uh, we always look for that kind of stuff. We always uh, take suggestions, and we try to talk about whatever it is that you uh, send in to us. So uh, please, uh, by all means, send it on in. Uh, the other thing is that we hope that you're having a wonderful Passover. Passover ends uh, the night of Thursday night. Uh, no, Friday night. Friday, Friday, yeah, Friday at sundown it ends. Uh, so, yeah, uh, enjoy that. And we hope that your uh, Passover is being centered around one thing, and that is the redemption that we have in the Almighty and the redemption that we have through the blood of our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Amen.